morning and let's stand and read the Word of God, starting at John 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will test also, testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I have spoken to you so that when, they hear the, when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and dis disclose it to you. And all things that the Father has given, all things that the Father are mine. Therefore, I said that he who takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Well, praise the church. Um, Lord, uh, when we first read this, some of it's very clear, and some of it is sort of maybe more difficult to understand and maybe repetitive and whatnot. And I just pray, God, that as we learn about your Spirit, that your Spirit helps me convey the truth to the church in a way that's understandable and clear. I also ask you that your Spirit, who dwells in the people here today, that your Spirit will guide them into truth, and um, we will learn more about what that looks like uh, as we go through this. But we, hope, we ask that if our hearts are not um, ready to hear your word, that they become ready, and that you will work in conviction now in our church as we speak, and also in encouragement as we learn from you and about who you are and how we're to live as Christians in this world. So I pray, God, that your spirit, as we sang this morning, be very present amongst us now and very active in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, today we're going to continue on a topic that we started a few weeks ago. In chapter 14, we learned for the first time in the Gospel of John about the role of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And if you remember from that sermon, uh, the role, the, one of the primary roles in chapter 14 was the Spirit was to bring back to remembrance all the commandments that Jesus had taught. So the implications of this then were if the Holy Spirit was to bring back to remembrance things taught in our lives, that the implication was we needed to then know what he taught. And I gave the illustration of a filing cabinet. If your filing cabinet has one folder in it, and that's all you know about the ways of God, then the Holy Spirit can only use that folder in, in leading you into truth. But if you have a, a cabinet full of folders, he can draw on those folders to help lead you into truth. And so it was very important, the implications were that <clears throat> we need to know the commands of Jesus Christ and we have to know what the scriptures teach. 
And the Spirit uses His, his Word to help us walk through life in that way. And today we're going to look at another role of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life. And that's how He helps us in our testimony to the unbelieving world. And how He helps us, um, through our message of the Gospel, convict the world. Convict the world of their need for Christ. But just before we dive in, I want to remind you of the context we find ourselves in. So in the verses prior, the ones we did in uh, 15, uh, 18 through 25 uh, earlier, in those verses, uh, Jesus has just share, shared with the disciples how the world was going to treat them. They were, going to, they were going to be hated and persecuted. And remember, he drew the parallel that they were going to be hated and persecuted because of their connection to him. And he said, the slave's not greater than his master. So in other words, if they treated Jesus with hatred and persecution, they were going to treat them with hatred and persecution. And in 16, 2 and 3 that we read this morning, he gives, he gives us the indication of what that was going to look like. He said, they will make you outcast from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. Now, these were not mild prophecies or predictions that Jesus was making. I mean, these were life-changing uh, things he was telling them. I mean, they were going to be kicked out of the synagogue. I mean, for us, it doesn't maybe make sense for exactly what that means, but the synagogue to a Jew was the whole social community. That was your life. That was, uh, that was your inner circle. That was life of a Jewish person. Um, imagine your whole life, which it does, of course, revolving around Genesis House. And the importance of our church community here. And if we said to you, if you confess Jesus as, as Christ or the King in your life, you're kicked out of this church. I mean, um, and imagine there was no other church to go to. So it wasn't like out of this synagogue to the next one. It was out of the whole synagogue completely. So there's a life changing for them, Jesus to tell them this. This, is a, this was not only a prediction, this has to come true in these men's lives. Secondly, they're to be killed. You talk about life changing. What a more life-changing event than to lose your life for the sake of Christ. So these were, these were sort of terrifying things that Jesus was sharing. But we learn from verse one, um, uh, 1 and from verse 4 in chapter 16 that um, even though these were threatening things, he didn't tell them to them as means of scaring them further, but he told them to them as a way of strengthening their faith. Look at verse 1. He says, These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. And verse 4, But these things I've spoken to you so that when you, their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. I told you these things to keep you from stumbling and so that you remember these things. The interesting word for stumble in the Greek language, it means to set a snare or set a trap. Well, you think of an animal that gets caught in a snare or a trap. What does that mean for that animal's life? Game over. Their, their, their dinner that night for whoever caught them, right? So defining stumbling in this way helps us give insight into why Jesus was up front with them about their future persecution. See, these men were going to be responsible for declaring the gospel message to the world. And had Jesus not warned them uh, about this future persecution, he, um, the disciples may have become shocked and disillusioned and fallen into uh, shrinking back in their faith, holding back from proclaiming the truth, and their faith was in real jeopardy. It could have, been, it could have faltered. 
And that's the last thing that Christ wanted for them. So instead of getting them, well, instead of facing these things in the future and being, be, them all being freaked out and shrinking back from the, the role they were called to, He told them up front so that they could remember what He said, so that they knew that they were still part of what God's plan was for their lives. So He told them these things as a means of encouragement and to strengthen their faith. But we know from verse 5 and 6 that their minds were somewhere else and they kind of missed what Jesus was saying. He said, Now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asked me, Where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now the disciples, as you know, as you read the scriptures in the past, are a vocal bunch. They're a vocal bunch, right? They're, usually they have the insert your mouth and foot syndrome, or foot and mouth syndrome, whatever, however you word that. <laughs> I just did it. For those of you who don't know what that means. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so they normally were really vocal and they always were had to be basically told to be quiet. Here they sat in complete silence and Jesus was expecting them to say after those comments, you should have said something there and asked him, well, where the heck are you going? What's the significance of you leaving? But they sat there because of the sorrow and grief that filled them. So seeing their grief, Jesus wants to reassure them then that this, his departure was a good thing. He sees them sad, he sees the sorrow, so now he wants to give another word of encouragement by saying, here's what you need to understand about the necessity for me leaving. And he actually tells them it's for their benefit that they go. It's for their benefit that he goes. Look at verse 7. He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you but if I go, I will send them to you. Now, how was it an advantage for Jesus to leave the disciples alone in, the, in his presence and for the Holy Spirit to come in his place in the future? Why was that an advantage? I don't know if you have a thought in your head now of why that might have been an advantage for that to occur, but hopefully after this you'll understand the significance of why that was important. You have to compare to, um, Jesus' earthly ministry with what the Holy Spirit was going to promise in the future. Okay, so Jesus' earthly ministry. Remember, he said his number one primary reason for coming was to preach the gospel so that people would repent and come to faith in him. It wasn't healings. It wasn't, you know, curing disease, demon exorcisms. They were important, but that wasn't the primary thing. He came to preach the gospel to lead people to repentance. Here's the thing though, he's limited in what he can do. He's got 12 men following around, he can only be one place at one time. If he goes into Galilee, he can't be in Jerusalem. If he goes to Jerusalem, he can't be in, in another city like Capernaum. He has to, he's limited by geography and these men are always following him around like puppies. And that's what they were supposed to do for those three years, but they're always together as a group and they're always limited by geography. So the only people that could hear the truth of the gospel and be convicted of the truth of the gospel and come to repentance were those who were in earshot, those who were there in presence with them. The thing about it was, is the Holy Spirit was going to come and replace Jesus. We see in verse 8 what he's going to do. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. So when the Spirit, when, when, when the Spirit indwelled the disciples and they all dispersed, all 12 of them dispersed throughout the land into the world, because the Spirit was present in them, when they would speak and declare truth, multiple people in multiple occasions at multiple times could hear the gospel message. And the Spirit, because He does the same thing as Jesus does, in terms of conviction of truth, was able to hit multitudes of people at one time. 
So again, if Jesus stuck around, the gospel message would be terribly, painfully slow in how it got around the world. By him leaving, it would explode exponentially. Kind of like the, like a, think of it like a Fort McMurray wildfire that happened like a couple years ago. Like one little match and poof, it just goes off and takes over a whole forest. So this is exactly why he had to leave. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Acts. So the gospel starts off in Jerusalem. It spreads out to beyond Israel's borders. And next thing you know, within the two decades, it's all the way in Rome. And if you look on a map and look at Israel today, look at what Rome is today, you think in 20 years, with no, with no airplanes, no Facebook, no internet, it, these people spread out the message and it hit, hit all the way over to the Western Hemisphere uh, within a couple decades. So that's why it was an advantage for the Holy Spirit to come and for him to leave. Well, that's cool when you think about it, because that means if the disciples are promised the Spirit, so are you and I. The Spirit has been given to us when we receive Jesus Christ. So because he's, the Holy Spirit is given to us when we surrender our lives, we can be partakers in his growing kingdom. It's an advantage for us to not have Jesus with us now too, because we can be partakers in his growing kingdom by the Spirit living in us, so that when we speak the message of truth, the Holy Spirit can use our message to convict others of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, two important truths emerge from this, I think. First, if, we're going to, if the Holy Spirit is going to use us in our presentation of the gospel to convict the world of sin, we need to understand the gospel. And I would say there's two aspects that you need to understand, and I need to understand. One is a positive message, and one's a negative message. Here's the, and as tough as Canadians to accept this because we're in a culture that is afraid to offend. We say sorry for everything, absolutely everything. And so we, we have the tendency to water down the gospel because it won't offend anybody. But Jesus promised the world will hate you because of your connection to me in truth. But here's the positive message. God loves the world. Absolutely. That's the positive message. God loves everyone unconditionally. That is no doubt about it. As a human being, you have value as a person and so does everybody and therefore they're loved. The negative side, though, is that the world, the world is guilty of sin. So even though you're loved, you're not in a relationship with God just because you're loved. You have to, the God, your sin has to be dealt with in order for God and you to be in that relationship. So you have to preach that God loves you, but not the way you are. He loves you as a person, but you have to change. There's sin He has to deal with in your life. And so that's, that's an important truth that we have to be... So if, we, if, we, if we water down the guilty part, that, you, that, none of, that all of us are without sin, we actually don't have a gospel to preach. There is no gospel. There is none. I love what Joe Dongel said. I'll read it quote for quote. He said, um, When either prong of the gospel proclamation is blunted, something less than the gospel is preached, and something other than salvation will result. That's a brilliant quote, and that's why he's a professor, and I'm not. Can you read that again? Yeah. When either prong of the gospel proclamation is blunted, something less than the gospel is preached, and something other than salvation will result. Here's a second aspect I want you to see from this then. Even though we act as God's agents through our mouth in proclaiming these truths, we are not the ones that convict. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts. Did you pick that up in verse 7? Looking going into 8, listen to this. He says, 
I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage I go away, for if I do not go, the Helper will not come to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin. So the Spirit comes to you, but you're not the convicting one. It's the Spirit who's convicting. But the message you're proclaiming is the truth of Christ and His truths. You're preaching the two-pronged gospel, but it's not your words that are convicting people's hearts. It's the Word of God. And it's the truth behind us, convicting them. That's an important thing, and I think it should give you encouragement. How many people, after trying your best to, to have a spiritual conversation, have left that conversation going, man, I wish I could do that all over again. That kind of, I kind of blew that one. <laughs> I see a lot of uh, either smiles or hands go up, so that means everyone feels that. Even I do. Um, when I go home, I mean, Denise, I'm probably a little bit better now, but in the first two years, and I'd preach in front of you guys, I'd always go home and beat myself up about what I should have said or could have said or could have done or whatever, right? Never think, I never think I'm doing a good job. Like, just, that's just the way the nature is when you, when, you, when you do something like this. And then you can relate to that because you always wish it a second chance. Here's the cool thing. If you stick to truth, no matter how goofy it kind of can get, and the way you present it, the Spirit can still use the truth to convict that person. So it's not the fanciness or the cleverness of your speech that's going to convict. It's the Spirit using the truth to convict the person. So all you are to do is proclaim the truth, which means you have to preach the two-pronged gospel. You've got to get both parts in there. You get both parts in there, God will use that. If you skip one or the other, that you've not got the gospel message. Right? That's the key. And we can talk a lot about that more in, in the dialogue. So let's look at the areas now that the Holy Spirit convicts someone in. And uh, I use the word prosecutor. A prosecutor in a court case is someone who tries to get, you know, well, you know what a prosecutor is, so forget it. But anyway, the Holy Spirit takes basically the role of a prosecutor within the world. Let's look at verses 8 to 11. He says, uh, uh, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. What does he mean by um, the first one in verse 9? Uh, the three areas. First one's concerning sin. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. What's that mean? Well... The world at large has rejected who Jesus is and why he came. Right? They've rejected who he is and why he came. And the world has various definitions of who Jesus is and his purpose for coming. I mean, you, you, you interview a thousand people in a thousand different countries, they're probably going to get very different answers. That means then that the Holy Spirit's role is to convict their person, to convict the person of who Jesus is and why he came. And the, uh, and the key is he, he wants to convict them of their guilt before God. If it's concerning sin, he wants to convict them of their guilt before God. And if we're going to, that means then we have to come to two places as a person if we're going to admit that we're guilty. The Holy Spirit helps us, helps the world see their guilt in two ways. One, it helps them see that they have, they have sin in their life. They have to admit they have sin. They have to admit they haven't lived up to God's standard of morality. And in self-reflection, when they look at the report card, they see a bunch of F's. Not A pluses. It's mostly F's. A lot of failures, a lot of hurt, a lot of 
pain they've caused. Come to a place where they recognize that their sin needs to be dealt with and needs to be punished. But secondly, within that part of their guilt, not only do they have to admit they have sin, they have to then recognize that their sin has been substituted for. Jesus has paid the sin for them. Come to a place where they recognize that even though they're guilty, God has provided a way so that they didn't have to pay. They didn't have to pay. Jesus died on the cross for their sins so that when they stand before God, they don't have to pay their own, their own, for their own sin. So again, with the Holy Spirit's role then is to come in and say, by the way, he's, he's constantly telling the world, you've got sin, you've got sin, you've got sin. This is what it is. But by the way, it's been paid for, it's been paid for. And he's teaching the world this. But that's the problem with the world is that's an unpopular, uncomfortable truth to accept. People do not want to admit they have sin and that it had to be died for. Stuart and I talk about this all the time. I have literally, in 12 years of personal training, and well, actually I've been doing it longer, but when I was doing the gym for 12 years downtown, and all the conversations I had, one person in my entire life in spiritual conversation admitted that they had sinned to be dealt with. One. The Okotoks bumper sticker reads this, we are all good people. That's the Okotoks bumper sticker. We are all good people. God loves us. That's the first part of the, well, the first prong of the gospel is God loves you. But, but, there's, but he loves you because he sent his son to die for your sin. That's why he loves you. Not because you're good the way you are. Now, of course, our bumper sticker reads we're all good people because in our culture, morality is relative. Um, you're, you know, how dare you judge me for what I believe. And right and wrong is not defined by God, by, by, by each individual in our culture. But the problem is, 1 John 1.10 says this, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and the word is not in us. Say that? If we say we have not sinned, we say that we've made God a liar. Why? Because Jesus would die for nothing. If Jesus, Jesus is saying this before the foundation of the world was created, Jesus, you need to go to heaven, you need to go to earth to die for people's sins. So when Jesus showed up and died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he was here for sin. So if we say that we don't have any sin, then God's a liar. He's like, Jesus, he made a blunder with sending Christ to earth. We have to come to a place, and the Holy Spirit's job is to remind us, or to tell us, that, and make us come to a place where we admit that our sin cost Jesus his life. Our sin cost Jesus his life. That's the Holy Spirit's role. The second thing is he convicts concerning righteousness in verse 10. He says, I'm concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you lo no longer see me. I had a hard time this week trying to understand what he meant by that. Um, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and because you no longer see me. Then I clued in. In both statements, he's making a reference to him departing from earth and going into heaven. You'll no longer see me. I'm gone to heaven. And I'm no longer, I'm going to the Father. Again, I'm departing from earth and going to heaven. So why did, what does righteousness have to do with his departure and going back to glory? Well, it was, I, I think this is, I would suggest this is what he's, what he's saying by that. We know that the only person who's ever lived a sinless, pure life in the history of the world is Jesus Christ. But we also know because of sin, the only possible penalty is death. We haven't lived rightly. We haven't lived righteously. So the only, pen, the only thing we have to face is death because of that. Jesus, because he lived pure, right, righteous, and sinless, 
wasn't able to, wasn't able to face death. He couldn't go to the grave. We talked about that a week, a couple weeks ago, about why he did he have to be resurrected. So because the only place he could go was the glory, that proved that he was righteous. The fact that we go to the grave proves that we're unrighteous, or we haven't lived rightly according to God, but because he went to heaven, proved that he was righteous. So what is, what's the world's problem? I'm good the way I am. I'm self-righteous. I'm, I, I'm like, don't tell me, don't judge me, don't tell me I'm wrong, don't tell me this. I'm, I know I'm right, I'm good, I'm this and that and the other. I'm morally okay the way I am. And so what he's saying, what he's saying is this, is that the, the, the Holy Spirit's role is to convict the world concerning the fact that they can't get to God on their own merits. On your own merits, you're not right before God. It takes the righteousness of another to make you right before God. And so the fact that Jesus faced the cross, died and resurrected, shows that we're not right. And if we, if we, if we uh, grab onto Jesus' coattails that we will, when, in faith, that we will actually attain his righteousness. So again, the world doesn't believe that it's not right with God. And so the Holy Spirit comes in to convict them that under no certain pretenses, everything is going, no one is going to enter the presence of God based on their own merit. The Bible uses a fancy term. It talks about imputing righteousness, imputing righteousness, or uh, crediting, accrediting righteousness to someone. And how do we do that? Through faith. We believe that we're not right, we believe that we're unrighteous, and we believe that God has to impute or credit us with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and His blood. Look at these passages. They're really powerful. Uh, Romans 3, 22 I use the NLT because it's simpler to understand. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right, or righteous, with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Romans 4, 3 and 5. The scriptures tell us that Abraham believed God and it counted him as righteousness because of his faith. When people work, their wages are not a gift but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So again, notice in both passages that, um, but that in both passages that uh, righteousness has to be something that's given to you by God, but is given to you because of the merits of Jesus Christ and his perfect, sinless, pure nature, and that they're imputed to you. They're given to you. You're given the status of righteousness because of the faith you placed in Him. So you've, admit, you've, 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 you've admitted you're a sinner. You've admitted there's a substitute for sins. You've admitted that you're not right in your own to, 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 to inherit the kingdom of God on your own flesh and blood. You need someone else's flesh and blood to cover you. And that's, that's what concerning righteousness means. Can I have the verse before? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. See, again, the problem with the world is it doesn't see itself falling short of God's standards of righteousness. Again, we live in a culture of relative morality. Every person has the right to determine what truth is and to deem what is right and wrong. And again, the Holy Spirit is basically crying out to the world saying, no, this is not true. This is not true. You need the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ. The last one is a conviction concerning judgment in verse 11. He says, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now what does he mean by that? Well, first of all, we should probably know who the ruler of this world is. 
Uh, we, we're not going to get into all the scriptures, but the rule of this world in the Bible is always a reference to the devil, to Satan. And we know, therefore, that um, the world is under then, the, if he's called the rule of the world, then we know that Satan then, or the people of this world, are, who, apart from Christ, are under the influence and are ruled by the devil. Now, it's not that the devil's in your room going, you know, I've got you, I'm controlling you. It's not that. But he sets up a system of values and ethics and standards by which the world operates. And if you abide by those principles, you, can, you are under the influence, or under, you're under the, the, you're, the, Satan is your king. Satan is your ruler. So what are those, some of those standards, ethics, and values? Well, 1 John 2.16 says, The lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those are all from, from, from the devil. Now, it doesn't take long to look in our culture and around the world to see those three things be prevalent. Why do we celebrate gay marriage? Why do we celebrate abortion? Why do we celebrate all these gender issues we're facing now? Why do we celebrate this idea of relative morality? Why do we celebrate all those things? Because Satan, as a rule of the world, has influenced the world to believe that the, to, to pursue the lust of the flesh, the lust of their eyes, and the boastful pride of life is a good and right thing to do. But his most important area for him that he wants all people to do is reject the identity and the purpose for why Jesus Christ came. It was true in our day. It's true in our day. He wants us to reject Jesus Christ because he knows he's the only way, truth, and, and life, and that no one can get to the Father but through him. <laughs> he knows that. So he knows that true in our day, but he also knew it was true in the time of Jesus. Satan knew that the ultimate sin was for people to reject Jesus Christ, and that's exactly what he wanted people to do. So when the world, who was under the influence of Satan, crucified Jesus... They thought and they were convinced that they were doing the right thing. They thought they were gaining victory over him. They thought Jesus was a criminal. He was demon-possessed and he was a lawbreaker. So when they punished him for the crimes that he did, they saw him themselves as victorious. So the cross was a necessary punishment for the crimes that he committed. The irony was, is the opposite was true. You see, it was Satan who had brought sin and death into the world an eternal separation from God. It was his idea to do that, and he succeeded. So Jesus' death and resurrection, by, he actually broke and defeated the power of sin and death. He defeated it. So because Satan had ultimate authority over sin and death and, was the, and had victory in that area, as soon as the cross happened, that meant that sin and death could no longer enslave or empower somebody and separate them from the love of God anymore. So when he, he, was, he was judged at the cross, because death and sin, which he stands for, was judged, and they gained victory. he gained victory over the world, but the world thought they gained victory over him. And I'll quote Dodangel again, it's really cool, he says this, Despite its joy over this supposed victory, the world would fail to realize that Jesus' crucifixion toppled its own <coughs> ruler. Right? The world failed to realize that when they crucified Jesus, they toppled their own ruler. Now, I'm not going to show it just because of the kids, but there's a cool scene in uh, The Passion of the Christ. You should watch it. Then the end of the movie, 
Jesus' death, he, he dies, and, uh, and, the, and the people are all responding different ways. And there's a clip, it's a Mel Gibson's um, take on it, but it's a cool thing to see. Satan's on his knees in the middle of the desert, screaming, screaming out, and the camera pans over his head, looking down at him from heaven. It's like God's perspective, and Satan's screaming on his knees, looking at heaven. Why? He's not sad about the crucifixion. He, oh, that's, that's a, that's a, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I'll show it to you. Yeah, that's cool because uh, he's crying out. You'll see this. He's crying out because he knows he's been defeated. And this power of sin and death has no longer got his grip on the world. Oh, here we go. Okay. cool eh just gets you into the emotions but that's the thing like when people die when people reject the Lord Satan throws a party like he's celebrating he's an absolutely he is thrilled just thrilled that he is killing people and separating from God people from God he loves it and when the cross happened he lost all power over people because death could no longer hold someone it was the cross that freed every single person from Satan's grip. And when we're born, we start off, we start off in under Satan's power. We're influenced by him. We're naturally on the, under the influence of the devil. We love his system. But as we're faced with the truth of the gospel and we receive the righteousness of Christ and we, we admit we're sinners and we go through and we admit that all these things and then Satan no longer has power over us. When we die, we go straight to glory. He has not defeated us. So here's the whole point. The world, I love what he says in verse 2. He, he who kills you thinks they're offering a service to God, right? He who kills you because of Jesus' name thinks they're offering a service to God. The world thinks when they reject Jesus Christ um, or kill people on behalf of Jesus Christ, they're doing a service to God. They think that. For those who don't believe in God, they don't even know that Satan rules over them. They think that they're making all these decisions and calling their own shots in their life and, and they have no idea that they're actually obeying a different king. They think, I, no one's authority in my life. I'm the master of my domain and Satan's going, no, I gotcha. I gotcha. You don't have no idea I gotcha, but I gotcha. As soon as you disobey God's truth, I gotcha. So people have, are, don't even know they're being ruled and they're being ruled. And Satan does a good job of staying back and making them think that because he can destroy someone that way. So here's the point again, that when you have these two camps, those who think they're doing a service to God by killing people who are connected to Jesus, or those who think they're not under Satan's influence, the reality is this, that Jesus says this, Satan has been judged already. He's already been judged. So therefore, by, by, by nature, anyone who belongs to a system is already standing under judgment. They're already judged. They just maybe haven't died yet, but they will be judged. So here's the point. Like He's saying, if Satan's been judged already, 
and the world holds its val his values dear to their heart, then they are going to be judged already as well. And so the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life and says this, I know you've never thought you've been under the judgment of God before in your whole life, but I'm letting you know that you're under the judgment of God. And just so you know, your ruler, your king has already been judged, and so are you unless you repent. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit's job. That's his role. I mean, this is crazy stuff, but he's out, he's, he wants the world to know, and it's crazy, through our voices. Through our voices. He uses us. He says, when we speak truth, he's telling, we're telling the world this. You've got sin that God wants to deal with, but he loves you. He's dealt with it. You've got this idea that you're self-righteous before God. You're not. He wants you to know that Jesus has become your righteousness for you. And you, I know you think you're not judged, but I'm telling you you're judged. But God judged his son so that you could have eternal life. He, he, the judgment fell on Jesus so that you would have eternal life. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Through our mouths we declare the truth of the gospel message. It's really powerful when you think about that. That's why you, as a church, we need to know the truth of the gospel. Don't mess around with that, uh, just playing like uh, Sunday school and, and Christian use like stuff. We have to know the gospel and know what to say to people when we speak. And the Spirit of God will use those truths to do those things. I'll finish with uh, verses 13 to 15. He had just taught them, of course, the role they would have in convicting the world of sin, but there was one more thing for them to learn. The Spirit was to take another role in their lives. He was to act as a guide and an internal teacher. Look at 13. When he comes, the Spirit of truth, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak in his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine, therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Notice the Holy Spirit's role here is to act as a guide in a believer's life, a guide. Uh, the word in Greek means to lead, to teach, or instruct. And now without that Greek word, you would have known that anyway. I mean, if I said, what's a guide? You know, what's a tour guide do? Well, he leads me around, shows me this and shows me that, right? I have to share with you one of my favorite uh, stories of being guided. <laughs> uh, Janice hasn't heard this before, so this will be fun for her to listen to. But uh, me and Janice aren't engaged yet, and um, I'm thinking, well, I could already tell she was one I wanted to marry. I thought, what a better way to test our relationship than go on a trip together. <laughs> so uh, I'm like, you want to go to Scotland with me and meet my family? And she's like, sure. I'm like, okay, here it goes, two weeks. We'll, find, we'll see who's going to ditch you here at the end of this thing. So, just so you know, I've been to Glasgow, uh, Edinburgh. I've been to, my family's in Glasgow, but Edinburgh is about 45 minutes on the train away from uh, Glasgow. And uh, I've been to Edinburgh Castle probably half a dozen times in my life, just because, you know, when you go to Scotland, there's something to do. And I often bring friends there, so it's a great tourist site to go. But always, they're always guy friends, and so we would just go, and like typical guys, it's just like we walk in, pay our money, and we walk around the whole castle in about an hour and a half and get out. Maybe even 45 minutes, I can't even remember, but we just do the thing, oh, that's cool, that's cool, out. I get together with Janice, and as you know, we're very different personalities, so I'm expecting in and out, gone. Janice uh, is a history major, loves English, loves sightseeing, doesn't want to miss out on anything, so she sees, which to me was a 
I would never ever consider, but she sees this person guiding people in the tour group through the castle with ear earphones and these like things, and she's like, that's a great idea. I'm like, hey, well, I want to get married, I better say yes. It's a great idea. So what became usually a typical hour, hour and 50 minute tour to the castle ended up being about three, three and a half hours as we follow this guide to the castle. But what was interesting was, you know, following the interests of my wife, to be, was that I learned a ton of things about the castle I would never have learned before. For example, there was a cool part in the castle where there was, I, I walked by it half a dozen times, never noticed it. There were indents in the, in the rock in, uh, on the top fortress, and the guy told us, this is from cannonballs from, from wars, and, and told the, the years of the wars, the people that fought, and they were indents of the cannonballs impressions in the building. I walked by them like over and over and never even noticed them. But you know, just cool things like that. If I ever go back there with my kids, I'll say, hey kids, look at these. See, those are the cannonball dents, right? But here's what's awesome. On my own, I had a certain understanding of truth and belief about the castle. But when I had a guide and instructor, all of a sudden, he, this guy opened me up to all the things I never would have known about the castle on my own accord. And the Holy Spirit comes in as a guide. He comes in a guide, but not for castles. He, he says here in verse 13, He will guide you into all truth. Okay, and again, in our culture, truth is what? Relative, whatever you want to make it. What is truth according to the Holy Spirit? Look at verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. He, being the Holy Spirit, will take of mine what I've taught and will disclose it to you. The truth is what Jesus taught. It's his commands. It's his words. It's his message. So again, we gain clarity in the Holy Spirit works in our lives. The role was not to bring the disciples or you and I new revelation after Jesus had died. It wasn't to be new revelation. It was to be the things that they had been taught in the past. However, these guys were slow. You and I are slow, unfortunately, often to spiritual truths. It wasn't like he was just saying, remember this verse, remember this verse. He was like, remember this verse and the implications and applications of how it works out into your life. So you might know something about the commandments of Jesus now, but you don't know how they apply. You don't know how they exactly work in your life. But as you get taught and things, the Spirit of God will say, oh, remember that passage? That's how this applies now in this situation. And so the Spirit of God becomes your teacher, your internal guide to what Jesus was as an external guide. So he's to be your internal director with the truths of God. That's basically a repeat of, of the sermon in chapter 14. But it's <coughs> kind of neat to think of it in that way. Because he, he calls the Spirit a counselor or a helper in chapter 14. Here he calls him a guide. And it gives you just another kind of word picture to see how he works. Alright, lots has been said. Um, I probably could have done that in two sermons, to be honest. Maybe I should have, but uh, I didn't. So, so but the Spirit of God will work that out in your life. So here's the three lessons I think we should take away. One, the Holy Spirit uses us, Christians, believers, in convincing the world of the need for Christ. Now you think, well, that's not a big deal. Yeah, it's a really big deal. Because God doesn't want to act independently of you and I. He wants to include us in proclaiming truth. He uses us in convicting the world of the need for Jesus. And, uh, and that's not, again, not our truth. Not, oh, you can make up some fancy like lingo and, and you come up with this awesome idea how to get connected to God. 
Spirit can't use any of that. That's garbage. That's, that's a bunch of lies. What comes out of your own head? He uses the truth of the gospel message. What, the two-pronged gospel. The love of God, but the also, at the same time, his need to deal with sin, your righteousness and judgment. The negative aspect of the gospel, too. So a cool thing, even if we're like buffoons in our presentation, God can still use it. Because you're not convicting anyone. The Spirit of God is using the truth from Him that you're using to convict the people. Second lesson. The Holy Spirit convicts the world in three critical areas of life and morality. The idea of sin. That they are sinners in the presence of God and and it was died for by Jesus Christ. Righteousness. They are not righteous in and of themselves to inherit the kingdom of God. It takes the righteousness of Christ to uh, make them right before God. There's a beautiful uh, passage in Revelation. Uh, I, I don't know why it struck me so much, but it, it just did. Um, there's, in, there's a bunch of martyred be- believers who are going to be killed in the end times. It's a pr- pr- prophecy of the future coming of the Antichrist in Israel. It talks about the martyred people who, who are going to lose their heads for Jesus and are be executed. And it says that they're standing before God in white robes. In white robes, which is a sign of purity, like holiness before God. Do you know what it says there? It says that the robes were washed in blood of the Lamb. Now, if you get blood, like Shannon's got a nice white shirt, so does Denise. If you put blood on that clothing, good luck getting that out. Right? Blood is a stainer, and, 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 and it's really difficult to get out of your clothing. It actually defiles your clothes. He's saying, because of the righteous blood of Jesus Christ, your robes are white and clean. It's a beautiful picture to say they're spotless, they're pure, they're blameless because blood has covered them. The very thing we think is a stainer, the thing we, things we want to remove off our clothing, is the very things that God says, you get to be in the presence of me because of it. It's a, it's a beautiful picture. But that's, that's, uh, that's the God standard of righteousness. We have to be covered by blood to get into glory. And concerning judgment, right? We have to tell them that, yeah, you're loved, but you can't keep going like this. You're under God's wrath. If, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm a good person. Yeah, well, then why did Jesus die then? God, he made God a liar. He died for nothing. If, you, if you're perfect as you are, and you're not judged, then why did God put judgment on the Son? It's a total blunder. He must be a liar. That's the implication of that when you carry it out. Third lesson. The Holy Spirit is given to every believer as an internal guide to help them or us live out the Christian life. Right? That's verses 12 to 15. He's given to every believer as an internal guide to help us live out the Christian life. Both the implications and applications of of Jesus' commandments.